this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, fortunes are made or lost, not by what happens to us, but by how we react. Bad things happen to good businesses. Now it's up to you how you want to respond. A lot of owners right now are cutting expenses to the bone, just trying to survive. Some are being paralyzed with fear. A rare few are taking the opportunity to reevaluate their business. Now that the shock has settled in and we are now in the process of restarting, it's really a unique opportunity to rethink what it is you want to create, how valuable a company you have, how much it runs without you, and what you might do now, maybe give it a little bit of extra time to structure it so that it can be something that lives without you and ultimately is a sellable asset. It's exactly what we do at Value Builder. You can check out some resources at valuebuilder.com. There you'll get a questionnaire, which will allow you to look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. We can also connect you directly with a certified value builder, a trained expert in the value of companies, and someone who can be your sounding board as you think about rebuilding. It's all available at valuebuilder.com. My next guest is Mike Spinoza, who started Unleashed Technologies with his partner and built it to a $6 million company when he sold it to Link Partners. My big takeaway from this interview is how to package your service like it's a product. A lot of companies have time and material-based pricing models. Others offer a retainer, but the R word can be a real turnoff to a lot of businesses and a lot of consumers. And as a result, what Mike did beautifully is create a retainer, but packaged it in different language. He talks about growth packages and offering his services in dosages that customers would need. He went on to sell his business, which he thought was worth around two to three times earnings for about double that. Here to tell you how he did it is Mike Spinoza. Michael Spinoza, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me, John. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so tell me about Unleashed. What do you guys do? So Unleashed is an enterprise digital firm. Uh, we focus on changing the way organizations view the web, uh, particularly when people talk about things like web applications, websites, digital customer experience, engagement. Um, there's lots of different disciplines these days that affect the web. And what Unleashed Technologies is really about is taking all of those different disciplines, putting them together and helping organization create exceptional experiences online. Online. Okay. Got mm -hmm. it. So, so the staff that you have, are they strategists or are they, you know, coders? Like who's on your team that, that, that actually does the work? So very interestingly enough, we're a full life cycle, uh, digital firm. So the answer to your question is yes. So we have senior solutions architects, we have developers, we have front-end developers, we have creatives like designers, um, we have uh, user experience specialists, we have DevOps. So we, fan we manage the full life cycle there. Uh, that really goes in tune with our model, which makes us very different than 
other digital firms, which is- Yeah, I was going to say, because there's like digital firms these days are a dime and doesn't. How do you guys set yourselves apart? What, what's, what's different about you guys? So we really set ourselves apart in 2009. And the way we set ourselves apart was not in the services we deliver, but how we deliver them and how we educate the client on the way that it should be delivered ongoing. So one of the driving principles of Unleashed Technologies was the web is fluid and always in motion. Meaning every day, every week, month, short term now, you're seeing consumer demands change. You're seeing B2B demands change from an online perspective, from a digital perspective. Unleashed Technologies has built something called a growth package where we basically have constructed a team full of these professionals that you can access in the dosages that you need. And it gives them the ability to have those senior architects, to have those, have those uh, senior backend developers, to have all the people they need for a set amount of hours a month. And then we, we track goals to that. So we give those web properties in those web applications, because it might not just be websites, John, it could be web applications that help internal operations, or it could be a myriad of things, but in that digital space, we're providing guaranteed service levels, we're providing fast action from a team, and we're helping them reduce their costs all at once. Traditional digital firms typically are time and materials or firm fixed price, and they operate in a, a very different way. This creates a lot of relationship hiccups. By following this fluid growth package model where we become an extension of your team, it's, uh, it's been an incredibly powerful model, and I think it's really resonated in the professional networks. Oh, man. I, I, just, I just love this example because it's so in the sweet spot of sort of what we talk a lot about, which is this idea of sort of productizing your service, branding it like a thing. Um, what was it like to go through that? Because on the surface, you know, the idea of sort of a retainer, it's like a terrible legal word, but like the retainer idea has been around for a million years, but you've, you've packaged it into something really kind of sexy and cool and it feels really different. The word dosages, the word growth package, the fluidity of it. Um, I think a lot of people are listening to this right now going, oh man, I want to do that for my company. I want to take my generic service that I'm selling time and materials basis and I want to create, I want to productize it. I want to create my own version of the growth package. Help me through that process. How did you, how did you come up with the idea of growth packages, dosages that people need and require? What counsel could you give other owners trying to go through the same process? Well, I would say uh, Unleashed, Technologies, Unleashed Technologies was founded in 2007. We got to the growth package in 2009. And the way that we found there is like any startup, um, we didn't have a lot, there wasn't a lot of people working for us and we had this very serious realization that we were a very average, mediocre digital firm. And we, we were looking for ways to differentiate ourselves, but what I came to was the differentiating ours, we, there was not a clear differentiator in the space that we played. And I wanted whatever our differentiator to be, to be client-centric. I didn't want it to be us-centric. Too often we see digital firms that are just finding new ways to promote themselves, right? And so I said, what is it that we can do that fixes the flaws that we see in this industry? And you have to remember, John, this was a different time. Like, it's not like we're, we're 30 years down the road, but it was, it's been 13 years, I guess, sure. 11 from 2009. And 
this this concept was not nearly as as understood as it is today. And so what we did is I took the the concept of the growth package. I said, what do people hate in this process? They hate change management. They hate they uh, are you familiar with change management, John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They they hate change management. They hate constantly being go back to they hate missed deadlines. They hate not getting quick responses. And what I learned is the flaw of the business, the the problems that happen in professional services businesses are because we're always looking for the next deal. So how can I help the client and help unleash technologies and then at the same time create something that no nobody nobody would ever be disposed of? Uh, so one of the big problems in professional services to all those people out there that are running time and materials that understand this is you don't know where your next big deal is coming from. This is a huge problem for the client, not, not, not just for you, not just for the business owner. And the reason it's a huge problem is because what happens is you'll take on a client and then another client will come in the door and says, if you don't take my business right now, I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, that's very bad because unfortunately that particular digital firm really needs that revenue. They, they're very scared to walk away from it, particularly when you're talking in the space of let's go from a million dollar company to up to a $10 million company, John. That's very tough to do. Well, what this model did was it allowed us to build in stable recurring income so that we knew exactly what we had every month and we could meet our SLAs. And in essence, our clients are helping protect Unleashed Technologies by ensuring that we have regular stable revenue. They're getting the services at a level that they've never received them before. And, and they don't have to worry about me threatening their time with other deals that are coming through the door. Now, there's what, sort of what sort of objections did you get in the early days when you were moving to the growth package and sort of talking to customers about, hey, we can do this growth package, doses is in the amounts that you want. Like, what, what were the common objections that you heard? The common objections of the growth package are still the same hmm. today <laughs> that they were that they were in two thousand nine, and I um, it's always that you there's always these core questions. What happens to my hours if they don't roll over? And what is the answer to that? It is you lose them, and that is exactly the reaction that I get. Silence. So that is why educating in a model is so important because if I'm going to guarantee you a terrific level of service, John, and you have 160 hours a month, if you roll over 100 hours in the next month because you're not actively engaged with what we're doing, how can I keep my promises in the next coming month with 100 hours I wasn't expecting coming in? I can't. Someone has to suffer, right? And so the answer, and, and, and does that pitch allay the concerns? Does it work? Like, what's your batting average with that response? Well, we grow more than 20% per year with 95% client retention uh, year in and year out. And we just last week, we became the number one global web. We're sorry, let me rephrase. We are the global leader in web development, according to clutch.co. Hmm. Congratulations. So that's what that, and so it's unconventional, right? And that's the thing is that everybody's like, that can't work. 
What, who would go for that? But the thing is, it's the education, it's the understanding of the value of the service. And it's not that we are trying, because a retainer-based model is typically conceived of, you know, the, the firm is trying to get one over on somebody. And that's not what's happening here. We actually start all of our growth package clients low and they, they build rapport and decide where they fall in, in terms of their hourly set-asides and things like that. Now, I want to be fair. If hours don't get serviced because we've ever, if we've ever made a mistake inside of our model, meaning something's happened where we can't serve, those roll over. That has to be that way because that's not fair to the client. We, we have to understand and they have to understand that this is about a relationship and a relationship that's built on trust and understanding what each of the organization's needs are. And by doing that, that's how we create an incredible product and that's how we do incredible things for our clients. I think too often we look at ourselves as one-off commodity vendors and that's a dangerous position to take. Like we're just so desperate, you're just so desperate to win business that you start, you stop realizing where you can present the greatest value. So we're willing to sacrifice on things that don't make sense. We'll say, yeah, yeah, all the hours roll over. Well, now you just set yourself up for a nightmare that you can't possibly support. What other objections do you hear? So the, the rollover hours is one. What other, what other common objections do you hear? I don't know that we need all that is a very, a very, very common objection. That's why we have different sizes of packages and how we've changed the way and changed the way that we deliver our services. So in 2009, it was formed. And then to 2020, you can imagine there's been a lot of maturity brought to that model. During that time, we never gave up on the model and there was lots of challenges in between there. So, so different groups view different thing, different websites and web applications differently. So some people don't care about technology and continued development. They're much more concerned with marketing and sales. So in that early on, one of the big contentions was I don't need continued development month after month after month after month after month, right? Now we, we're full life cycle there. So we have those marketing capabilities in-house so that the growth package is meant to be flexible. And because it's flexible, they can use their hours per month for whatever they need. John, you might come to me in month one and say, I'm looking at this new enhancement, or we might recommend it to you. Proactivity is an important part of ongoing success in the growth package model. So I might say, oh, we should do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, those are great ideas. And it's very development focused. But next month after that, it might be design focused. And we might have hours set aside in our growth packages focused on SEO, SEM, um, and marketing-based services. So it's really meant to say, John, if, if someone hires Unleashed Technologies, they're the CMO of us. They're the director of marketing of us. They're the CTO of us. And we, we want that experience to be like we're in the office and that they hired a person and they have people in each one of those roles that they need. That is how we think about what we're doing. Um, Tell me the thinking behind the word dosage. It's, I, it's a unique so, word. It is. And I don't know that I love the word dosage either. <laughs> it's, the one, it's the one that I guess popped up in my, in my head. Um, it's just about giving the thought process behind it was you don't need a full-time 
user experience expert. You don't need a full-time senior developer to accomplish a lot of the things that you're doing in the mid-market. Even the SMB, let's call it SMB in general. You don't need those things full-time. But to compete on a modern web or digital landscape, you need those specialty roles today because you can be rendered. A lot of companies don't find value in the web because they don't know how to make it valuable. And that's true even today, if as crazy as that sounds in, in 2020. But they, and if they do see the value, they don't know how to get there in a reasonable way. That's why these growth packages exist because they allow um, upper small and I would say mid-market businesses to be highly competitive in a larger arena. Because I can, instead of saying, I need to hire a $90,000 uh, or $90,000 project manager, I need to hire uh, a creative director that's 150000 I need to get all, all these different things for, you know, a, a fixed amount of month, money per month. I can give them exactly what they need and the dosages they need. And then they don't have to renegotiate timelines every time. That's the other part of it is that, is that when you do time and materials, you never know when someone can get something done. Well, here, I'm guaranteeing the time and I'm guaranteeing a certain level of SLAs. You know, I love it. And again, I, I love not only the, the business model, but also the packaging around it. Because for a lot of people making the move, they would say, oh, it's a retainer. You can have this many hours. And, and in your case, it's, it, 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 you're using words like dosage and growth package, and it, and it feels really uh, quite, quite unique. You started this business at a, at a time that um, is... I guess in a lot of ways, similar to what we're dealing with now, we're recording this in, in the early part of May, 2020, we're in the, in the throes of a, a pretty serious recession. What was the toughest part for you? How, how bad did it get for you in, in, in the 08 or 09 recession or, you know, anytime during your, uh, your tenure running this company? So interesting. It's totally different moments in time. So in 2007, 2008, the recession was an advantage for Unleash Technologies. Hmm. In what way? We were a crappy young startup that could be very flexible and agile with our hourly rates. We could move on a dime, and it was easy, easy for us to have a very high level of service at that time while undercutting much more established players in the market. I would dare to say, that the business model born of that recession is the one that was meant to protect us today. So learning from those experience, our entire model is focused around recurring revenue and having long-term relationships with people that find continual value from Unleashed Technologies and we find value in growing with them. So, so when we come to 2020 and we're in this COVID crisis right now uh, where we've got this, you know, nationwide, or I should say global pandemic. And the B2C market has just been hammered by this, right? Um, we did a couple things really, really smart. This is the first thing we did is we have um, our, our industries, we have different verticals and those verticals are very distinct from each other. This helps give us some insulation to what's happening with COVID. Uh, the biggest damage we've seen from COVID so far is uh, the reduction in sales pipeline. So 
a lot of people that are currently working and currently doing things, we've definitely had people, you know, the thing about anything in life is whether you have a contract or not, people, if there's no money, there's no money, John, at the end of the day. And so, so we've had to be very aggressive with working with our B2C clients to make sure they know that we're equally committed to them. And then on the incoming pipeline, we've had to open up new creative ways to try to reach out to people because there are they're, they're slowdowns there. And that's true for everybody. You know, I think one of the things that we do in business, John, is we try to hide our pain because it's viewed as weakness. And I don't think that that's something that we should do. I think as a business community, we should band together and say, these are the challenges that we're seeing. And this is how we can, this is how we can tackle it. So, so specifically, uh, how have you helped, you know, your business to consumer customers who are in, as you point out, in desperate straits right now, what, what specifically have you done to support them? Have you deferred the costs, lowered their growth plans? Like what specifically have you done? Um, a couple strategies that we've done so far is that we've deferred their contracts. So if they needed a deferral, we'd give them a deferral. If they needed, um, if they wanted to work on, you, you, you basically put the words in my mouth, it was well done, is uh, we've, we've given them temporary reductions in their growth packages. Um, and if anybody's in dire, dire need of something that, you know, can't be taken care of today, we take care of that and then we work it out. And I can't get more detailed than that. I hope you understand. But yeah, yeah the, no, for sure. But the reason we can do that, and I think this is an important point, is because Unleashed Technologies is so financially strong. And we're financially strong because we have long-term recurring engagements with our partners and our clients and everybody. And that gives us a base to work from. And that's why I always encourage something like this model, because if you're living that TNM life right now, if you're living that project-based life right now, you must be really feeling the burn. How, what are your uh, terms in your growth package uh, for around cancellation? Do they, are they 12 months rolling over? Do they have the option to cancel any time? How, how have you structured your cancellation terms? I think that might be a bridge too far for me, John in terms of how, how like the, the true nitty gritty of how the growth packages run and what our legal terms are. But I will say that um, we, we typically build our contracts on um, an annual basis and then they have options to do extended terms upfront, two year, three year, you know, but most things are done in annuities. Got it, got it, that's helpful for sure. So how big did you get this company before you decided you wanted to sell it? Like in terms of, revenue or number of employees or some proxy for sort of how, how big were you when you decided it was time to, to sell? About 6 million. We, we were six hitting about the 6 million range. We're a three-time Inc. 5,000 company. It's interesting because uh, one of the things that we did in 2016 or 17 after winning Inc. 5,000 um, three years in a row is we decided we wouldn't grow like that anymore. We made that conscious decision. Um, well, we worked we weren't able to control the quality of the product and it was causing us all kinds of headaches. So we, we have a motto at Unleashed Technologies, 20% growth, 20% per year at a 20% profit with a 90% client retention. And everybody, 2090, love it. Yep, 2090, everybody in the company knows it. Got so it. That's how we did it. Got it, love it, love it. So, was there a 
was there a sort of a trigger that made you think, okay, now's the right time to sell? Like, I mean, this thing's growing like a weed and things are great. I think 5,000, you know, why sell? What was the trigger? So I wasn't looking to sell. <laughs> um, that's the most interesting part. I wasn't looking to sell. I was taking calls. Oh my God. I wasn't taking them is probably the word I would use. I was receiving calls probably once a month. Um, and I don't know how that happens, but I think when you hit a certain threshold and the taxes, like people scan the tax returns and figure out how big you are in the markets you're in. No, the um, 5,000 is probably, probably yeah. big. <laughs> <laughs> big driver of that too. Right. And so, you know, they, they were reaching out like crazy and I would just say, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Um, and then through, through a mutual friend, I was introduced to what is our now CEO, Mohammed Hutasaha. And this guy gets on the phone and he says, nothing of interest to me. Just to be perfectly honest, <laughs> nothing of interest to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe we'll talk again sometime soon. So, so Muhammad was introduced to you through a mutual friend. What was the guise under which the introduction was made? Like, hey, this is a good guy you should know, or hey, he runs like this company. Like, how did you, how was the introduction set up? The introduction was set up as, hey, you should talk to this guy. And I said, I'm not really in the market for that. And he said, just hear what he has to say. And I said, when you said you're not really in the market for that, what was the that you were, you were describing? Okay. So you knew he was, he was looking to acquire your company. I did. And so uh, all of us in our lives take meetings that sometimes are meant to help a friend out right? To, to be like, yeah, all right, I'll talk to him, you know, kind of something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the first conversation, I was like, yeah, maybe we'll talk again. And then I, this is where it gets gray for me, but we had another conversation like a week later and we ended up talking for two hours about business and about what we're seeing in the market and what he's interested in, what he's looking for. And I felt like I could talk to him as a friend. And that was an interesting thing. And that was the beginning of opening my mind because I had, I had this hard line in the sand for taking on outside money or doing anything like that. And I did because, because I didn't want to be controlled. I didn't want, I didn't want people, I didn't want anybody from the outside telling us the best path forward. And I wanted, because so many times while we were building out this very unique model and the way that our company is founded, people told me it would, nobody believed that it would work. And so, you know, I like, I didn't want that kind of feedback because I knew that it would work and it did work and it is working. And, and, you know, there's some secret sauce in there and a lot of lessons learned over the last 10 years, John, but I didn't want that kind of interference with where we were heading. Now, as I talked more and more to Muhammad, you know, I realized that this wasn't about taking away my control. This was about creating an opportunity for the company because the vision in the, the vision of Unleashed Technologies as is written in the wall, the second you write, walk in, it's huge. You can't miss it. It says to be the most influential digital firm in the United States. And I said to myself, how am I getting there? How old am I going to be when I get there? <laughs> you know, and so, because I knew, I believe in my heart, and I've always believed in my heart, 
that we could get there on our own. What was in question was the timeline, right? There's a wealth of knowledge of really intelligent people out there that oftentimes we as business owners can't access in the doses we would like because free advice is free advice, right? So I, I, I really started looking to Muhammad. I started investigating his professional background and I started listening more about what this private equity firm, this group was looking to do. And what they were looking to do blew my mind. It was everything that I wanted. What, uh, what were they looking to do? They, so Unleashed Technologies has this incredible reputation in the marketplace. That's been cited by the things that I mentioned earlier. We have a very notable and driven name, and that's really cool for a small company, which is what seven, I came from a big business background. So to me, a $7 million company is, is, is a very small company in my mind. I'm sure others in, in the web industry, I don't think it would be viewed that way, if that makes sense. But, but, yeah, but what, you said something about what Link wanted to do was oh, no, intriguing I, to you. What was yeah, that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, be, I, be, I was beating around the bush a little bit mm -hmm. there. What Link wanted to accomplish was they wanted to take Unleashed Technologies and they wanted to basically build it into this large national brand and make it the parent brand. 90% of the time, when you start having acquisition discussions, it's by a group that wants to assimilate your company into a larger company and eventually wipe out its name and do a lot of different things to it, right? In the course, this group was looking to make Unleashed Technologies that parent brand. And then go out and acquire other smaller digital firms and put them under the Unleash umbrella. What did you think? In the culture, in the way that we were doing things, yes. And that was so appealing to me that I was just blown away, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, for sure, for sure. What did you think the company was worth? You know, before you saw their offer, I mean, you, you, I'm sure heard, you know, multiples out there. What, what had you heard that digital firms were trading at? Well, John, it goes without saying that Unleashed Technologies is clearly worth 100 times whatever, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, that being said, you know, I was expecting a three turn, maybe a two and a half. On uh, profit or revenue? EBITDA. Okay. And wh why, why, where did you get the two and a half to three times EBITDA number? I just, I just, I didn't know what to expect. And there's always this, so product turn, product firms are always like, oh, you know, it's worth 10x multiplier on the total total worth of the company, right? It, it was It's crazy. And they're like, nobody wants professional services firms. Nobody's interested in professional services firms. Um, you're, you'd be lucky. Like if we did it pure on company assessment value, you know, you'd, you'd probably get one and a half turns on that. If you did it by this, you'd get that. And I was always listening, always learning from people. And what I always learned is nobody liked me. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't, I, I guess I wasn't particularly sexy and particularly for the reason that professional services firms, firms from an acquisition perspective present risk because the owners are typically very involved with the relationships with the clients. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it, this, is, this is common. This is a well-known issue in that 
a lot of times people are buying the people and those people and that retention is crucial for the ongoing success of the organization. So, so I wasn't expecting a huge multiplier. Now, what I got far exceeded my expectations. And, you know, just like Tom Brady would think, you know, Bob Kraft over here, I'm going to thank Link Partners. You know, it was great. And I was very excited about what was presented and where we ended up going. Got it. And so when did the conversations go from, uh, it sounded like you had a, a relatively in, in uh, significant first conversation, but the second conversation where Mohammed really talked about his vision and your vision of, of really becoming the most influential digital firm in the United States, things started to gel and you started to kind of get closer. Where did it go from there? Was, what was Mohammed's next step? Mohammed's next step was, the, once we did, I would say we did three conversations. Then we executed an MNDA. And then, and then we, we immediately started sharing openly. And one of the things that was really great about Muhammad, you know, and I want to, I want to, I want to give my team credit for this as well, is that the first thing we did when we decided we were really going to take a look at this, and I did bring critical members of the team up to speed early on it, um, was, uh, and I said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it arms wide open. We're not going to be defensive and untrusting. We're going to show and lead by trust. And I think that has made all the difference in this process. So MNDA, we started sharing our finances. We started sharing our business model. We did a huge presentation for Muhammad so we could get closer to understanding the business <laughs> and how it operated and what it did and where the strengths and weaknesses were. And that's what the next step was after those conversations. And so you're revealing all this information at what point does it does it become more formal? Does does Muhammad prepare a letter of intent or a indication of interest of some sort? Like, how do yes. we put his? Okay. Yeah. So we prepared a letter of intent was prepared after those initial discussions and based on his review initial review of the finances. Um, and it was a little more in depth than that, but that's the general gist of what happened next. And what was your reaction to the letter of intent? Just. Well, my, my emotional reaction to the letter of intent was at first, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, this is like not a lot. It was actually, there was fear when I referred, when I, when I got the first letter of intent. What? To be honest, um, I suppose that requires some explanation, doesn't it? Uh, Just a tad. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that I had been working on for the last 13 years of my life was about to be someone else's. Like this was real. This wasn't a kick in the tires kind of thing that we were doing here. It was real. And I didn't know how that was personally going to affect the identity of Michael Spinoza and who I was from a professional perspective. What, you know, had I done enough diligence to understand how my team would be affected in this? The people that have trusted and invested in me to, to run a great company, did this person really want the same business goals that I had or was I getting bullshitted? Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very difficult, it was a very diffi difficult position to be in, in the sense that I was, this was a major change 
for me as a professional. What was your reaction to the valuation? Favorable. <laughs> so you were expecting two and a half. You were expecting two and a half to three. What did it come in at? Um, I can't tell you what it came in at uh, exactly from the from the valuation perspective, but well north of those numbers. So like north of five ish, five to six in that range, five to seven. Yeah. We're in the target zone. Uh, that's as far <laughs> as I can go with that. No, uh, that's, that, that's fine. So, so the other piece of obviously letter of intent is, is sort of structuring. So um, what was the, uh, you know, what were the, the sort of big frameworks around how long you would stay on when you would get your, you know, your, your, your money effectively? Were you getting some upfront and then some sort of in the future? How do, how do they structure the deal? So again, I'll, I'll give you what I can give. Um, almost all professional services firms when they're, when they're bought, and everybody, everybody has a different flavor and people, you know, there's always these outliers, but you have some version of a net earnout, <laughs> meaning because the retention and migration of the business is so crucial when selling a professional services firm. Sure. I would tell you that for me, I required the majority of my money up front for me to be interested. Remember, I was in a very unique position, John, that mm -hmm. other usually aren't, which is, I had no reason to sell. I didn't have to sell if I didn't want to. This was an this was an interesting opportunity. So for me, I just was like, okay, if this works out, this will be wonderful. And if it doesn't, okay, this will still be wonderful. So I was in a very unique position where I could I could really be confident in my negotiating space, if that makes so sense. It does for sure. So you're looking right. for the majority up front. The other piece, I guess there's two ways I've seen it structured. I'd be curious. Sometimes it's structured as an earnout, meaning the, there is a, a set of goals in the future that you've got you've to hit. Right. Um, and if you hit them, then there's a, a, a triggered uh, additional payment. Other times, however, in particular with private equity groups, it's more of an equity carry, meaning you, you essentially roll over some of your equity into, into, into a new entity. Mm -hmm. um, and become almost partners with the private equity company. And sometimes it's a combination of both. In, in your case, was, was it one or the other, or a little bit of both? So interesting, it was all three. Interesting, okay. So I received, you know, we did a lot up front. I rolled yep. equity and we have some earn out there. Okay, that's helpful. And, and I understand, and we talked a little bit before we hit record, that Mohammed is now... Um, at least in title, it may be perhaps more than that, the CEO of Unleashed Technologies. Maybe talk a little bit about the backstory on that and how you came to terms with, with, with that. So Search Fund Partners, which is, works with Link in this group, uh, there's a particular type of investor out there, John, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with, but if not, just in case, they're called searchers. Um, and what this group does is there are people with larger business experience that are particularly targeting well-established, highly reputable firms that are looking to go to the next step. 
And so what Muhammad brought to the table was a very, very strong financial background and an cr incredible past track record in M&A. And what made that interesting to me was that I am a marketing sales and vision guy. And what he could bring to the table and what I, why I felt that he could accelerate our growth was because he was tremendously familiar with this M&A process. He was tremendously familiar with um, how, to, how to structure things as companies grow. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm talking down about myself a little bit, but you know, when I think of finances, I can, I can do P&L, I can do all those things, I can run a profitable organization as been proven. But, you know, I don't have strong relationships with banks. I don't have a huge investment network because I never focused on those things. I turned away from them. Um, bringing in Muhammad and having him become the CEO allowed me to focus on the things that I feel that I'm exceptional at. And it also allowed me the opportunity from a personal, professional perspective to learn from someone that, you know, can help me not make a ton of really big mistakes in that process. How did you be appealing to me? Very appealing. I can, I can imagine just given his depth of experience and qualifications, how did you, or I guess what was your um, emotional reaction to no longer being in full control? What, what sort of what sort of impact has that had on on you? Well, it's a roller coaster of emotions. And here's what I would say. When I first did it, it was relief. And I'll tell you why it was relief, because um, I had been I had been at the at the helm of the ship for 13 years. And I felt like that there was some kind of reprieve, even though it was fictional. Remember, we have two states of mind, right, which is let's call it objection. Uh, ob um, objective and emotional, right? From an emotional perspective, I felt like a burden that I happily carried was lifted off my shoulders temporarily, right? That I had someone that was carrying that, that, that heavier mantle for a moment. And that was the first thing I had. In terms of dealing with the changes, that came later. So we sold and we really, let's call all conversions done November, okay? Of 2019. Right, November 2019. So where, where it went to next was the, th the first time not being at the helm impacted me in the last couple months where I saw things that I wanted to correct and I realized that that was no longer for me to correct. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Tell me, give me a specific example. Like, are we talking about like the pencil sharpener was in the wrong room? We should put it over here. Like, what sorts of things would you want to correct but no longer be able to? Like, so if something happened in production or there was, um, there was decisions made about resourcing and how we go about certain things, it was just more overall. And I realized for the first time ever, I think of, I think of running a business like a highway. There's five lanes. And maybe, let's see if I got my lanes right. You got sales, you got marketing, you got finance, you've got production. Okay, four. So you have four lanes here, right? And, you know, when I was CEO, I could bob and weave between all the lanes whenever and however I wanted. I could just zip around, 
weave in and out of traffic. If I wanted to drive zigzag across all of it, I could. Well, now I have two primary lanes and I stay in those lanes. And if I see something over there, I feel like I'm yelling out the car window going 100 miles an hour. To the person, That's a great analogy. Right? <laughs> in LA, I'm like, it's messed up, you know? Like, you gotta, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't go into that lane at all. Like, it's not my spot anymore. It's, it, and so I found myself having a hard time dealing with that. But what I did learn about that was that um, maybe I was stepping on some toes a little bit while I was a CEO because I would come in and I would solve and I would act on those, those, those things. And by the way, when I use the term issues, if it's an issue for me, it may not be for them because they're seeing it differently. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're like, no, this is how we're doing. I'm like, well, that's an issue. And they're like, mm, no, it's not. <laughs> so if you had, if you had it to do over again, this, this entire, uh, experience selling to link, what might you do slightly differently if you could take the last, say, 12, 18 months, that, that window, uh, the beginning conversations with Mohammed through, you know, sharing offer now sort of post offer. What if you had one thing you might do differently, would it be? I underestimated the value of finance like I always do. And here's what I mean by that. I had amazing I had amazing guide through the LOI. I had amazing legal legal counsel through the final contracts, but I didn't engage finance soon enough to help me understand tax implications and things that I should be considering and how different sources of revenue are marked different things and how taxes affect those in the sale. And now I will say Link Partners and their team were extremely helpful in those last minute last minute things because I, you know, I got caught shocked a little bit and my estimations were off, but I should have brought a finance team in to help me get the lay of the land and what I should be expecting earlier. Yeah. And, and when you say that you're really, you're really thinking about when it comes to the finance piece, the tax implications of a sale yes. of your business. Yeah. If and, that was clear, I apologize. Absolutely. And and is that come down to were you selling shares or assets of your business and, and and was that the the kind of surprise that came out? It was an asset transfer. It was an asset sale. Okay. So what specifically surprised you about the tax implications of the the proceeds? So without without being too specific, there's there's different tax classifications for different services that you provide inside any professional services firm. So, so if something is deemed, is deemed as like a product or you have a certain amount of, if I have $400,000 worth of assets that are physical, those are taxed differently than the professional services and the revenue I generate. And, um, just to transfer in the sale of those assets, you know, I think it's like 30% or 35% or something like that, which made me drop a chalupa for manufacturing firms. Oh my God. When I realized what their chalupa, chalupa, like when I realized what, what they're probably dealing with because of the type of business that they're in, I mean, my head would pop off because they've got hard assets. Yes, hard assets. Absolutely. And also what, some of what you're hearing here too is, 
I am very strong in vision, sales, marketing, strategy, uh, those things. I have never claimed to be a strong financial CEO. I've never claimed that. It's, I got, you know, I got enough from the accounting class in college to get by. Yeah, so, well, I think you're not alone. I think there's a lot of people listening that feel the same way. Strong on vision, strong on product, sales, marketing, and maybe less deep in, in hard finances. So I guess right. the lesson is, 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 is really have an advisor who can help you understand the tax implications of structuring your deal. Um, Absolutely. You, gotta, you know, the, the, in your genes number at the end may, may vary depending on how you structure it. Um, I, I'm just so grateful for you sharing the story. I love the way you productize the business. I think it's an amazing, uh, amazing example of, uh, of success in professional services. If people want to check out you, uh, the company, where would you point them to? I would point them to our primary website. I would point them to uh, unleashed-technologies.com. And I would, I would very much encourage anybody to reach out to us via phone, 410-864-8980. Excellent. And, and are you okay accepting LinkedIn connections as well? Of course. Okay, Absolutely. so it's, it's Michael Spinoza, right? And we'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. And if anybody ever has any questions about or they're looking to go through that process, I'm always willing to talk about my experiences. Well, you've, you've uh, been very generous with your time today, Mike, so I appreciate you doing it. Uh, and best of luck with the, uh, the, new, uh, the new partnership. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.